I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 is where we are. We've been away from the book of Acts for about a month now for, for different reasons, but back in the book of Acts, uh, moving through or really stepping into uh, chapter 14 this morning. Let me ask you a question while you're turning there. Uh, imagine for a moment that you are in your living room. You're there on the floor. You have just purchased a bicycle, all right? And you've got the box there. You've ripped the top off of the box you got all the parts there in front of you, and you decide you're going to put this thing together. It's a, uh, say, 30-speed. Uh, by the way, whatever happened to 10 speeds? I remember three speeds. In my day, we had, no, I remember three speeds, five speeds, and you know, now like 34. I don't know how many speeds they make now, but you've got a 30-speed there in front of you, all the parts there, and you're decide, you have decided, I'm going to put this thing together myself. And so 30 minutes into it, you're still looking for tools. Uh, an hour into it, you're on step one. Two hours into it, you're still on step one. About two and a half hours, you turn the page in the instructions. And they do come with instructions, by the way. Some of you might not have realized that. You turn the page, and you realize that there are 30 steps to this thing. You, you've got a lot of work ahead of you, and you're still already two, hours, uh, two and a half hours into it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you right there would say, no bike, I am done, I quit? Let me see your hands, just real quickly. Be bold, you quitters. Be bold. All right, you can put your hands down. How many of you would continue? You, you're going to get this thing. You're going to conquer it. Let me see your hands if you're one who's going to conquer the thing. All right, put your hands. How many of you would just go buy one already assembled? That's the smart group amongst us. There we go. eBay, baby. And... Uh, let me paint another scenario for you. Say you are, uh, you know, you're on break at work, you go to the break room, or, or if that's not a scenario for you, say you're at the, at the gym and you, you know, you, somewhere in the, the, the scenario there, you, you come across an acquaintance. You don't know him real well, but you know him well enough to, you know, to say hello and to chit-chat. And so in the break room, at the gym, on campus, wherever it is, you come across a person that you know some, to some degree, and you're just talking. And, and before you know it, you didn't really try, you didn't ask for it, but you're talking about spiritual things. And you realize in the course of your conversation that spiritual to you and spiritual to that person could not be further apart. They have their idea of what's spiritual, you have your idea. And as you're unfolding and unpacking what your faith means to you, and you're just tossing out the name of Christ, or you're mentioning how God has blessed you, you're talking about some aspect of your walk with the Lord, what you find is, is that they begin to just kind of chuckle a little bit about some of your experiences and some of the statements that you make. And then they begin to make a comment about what you hold precious, you know, your faith. And they begin to maybe even deride, they, they downplay, they even talk bad about your, your faith and what you believe about, about God or about his word. You know, they call for a coworker, they call for a buddy, hey, come over here, let me tell you what they just said. And they, they kind of recapture a little of what you said and they twist it just a small degree. And then both of them are kind of standing there laughing, laughing at you. Let me ask you a question. Do you quit? Do you walk away and say, I'm done? You know, never again am I mentioning anything about what I believe to this person or to any person for that matter. Or do you stay there? Do you continue, not conquer it, so to speak, but do you, do you continue to, to pursue that person, to continue to put your heart out on a limb? Do you continue to, to, to chase them, so to speak, with the truth that you, that you found has changed your life? You know, there are, there are people that would be tempted to say that Paul's first missionary journey that we read of starting in chapter 13, chapter 4, there are many that would say or be tempted to say that his first missionary journey was a failure. I mean, he starts off, it's he and Barnabas and another guy named John Mark, Barnabas's cousin. And as they're making their way at the very beginning of their, of their journeys, really the first missionary journey, John Mark quits. He, you know, he deserts them. He, he says, I'm out of here. I'm, who knows where he went, headed back, headed away from them. And that's going to be an issue later in the book of Acts, as we'll see for, for Paul. He's going to remember that. 
But one of his key players quit early on. They get to a place called Pisidian Antioch. There's controversy when Paul begins to talk about Jesus. People begin to form opinions about him, try to get him out of, out of town. and He ultimately does leave the town. You get into chapter 14, you find that, that there's more opposition. People begin to even threaten and put together some form of, a, of resistance against him that would involve stoning him, just hurling rocks at him to chase him away, ultimately try to bring his life to an end. And then later in chapter 14, we'll get here maybe next week, in a city called Lystra, it's exactly what they do. They stone Paul. They leave him on the outskirts of the city, dragging him out there, leaving him for dead. And Paul had a decision to make, and that decision was, do I just throw up my hands right now and do I quit? Do I go back to making tents? Do I go back to what's comfortable? Do I go back to what's always been familiar to me? Do I just quit right here, throw up my hands and say, God, I love you, and I'm going to continue to pursue you, but all these other people are left to themselves, let them find you on their own? Or does he continue to persevere? Does he continue to press forward? Does he continue to do what he knew that God had called him to do with a heart that was committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the decision that Paul would have to make. This morning I want to look at a message entitled, When Silence is Not Golden. And we're going to begin here in chapter 14, verse 1 of the book of Acts. We're just going to read seven verses this morning. And I want us to pull out one principle that I hope will be a benefit to you. In fact, let me go ahead and give it to you this morning. The one principle we're going to see out of these first seven verses in Acts chapter 14 is this, is that your voice for Jesus is too valuable to be silenced. What you're going to see here in this passage of Scripture, we're going, to, we're going to add some more to it as well, is that your voice for Jesus Christ is far too valuable to be silenced. And so Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, I want you to read with me as we see another experience from this first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Verse 1, he says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, and they embittered them against the brethren. All right, so do you see this picture unfolding? Paul goes in, as was his custom. He goes right to the synagogue. Paul was a Jew by heritage. He was trained by the best, a man named Gamaliel. He was once advancing through the Jewish ranks faster than anybody else that was alongside of him. And then he comes to Christ, but he doesn't forget his Jewish heritage. And so, as was his custom, whenever Paul would go to another city, he'd find the synagogue. And that's, bam, right where he'd go. He'd go right to that synagogue. And he would, he would take part in the worship there, but he would proclaim Christ. As a visiting rabbi, he would often, if not always, be given an opportunity to speak. What do you think he spoke about? He spoke about Jesus. And that was his custom. That's what he did here in the city of Iconium. But then there would be Jews there, verse 2 says, who disbelieved. They didn't accept Christ as the Messiah. They didn't believe what Paul had to say. And they embittered the Gentiles that were in that city. And, and that word embittered could be translated that they poisoned. In other words, they, 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 they uh, poisoned or they uh, uh, somehow twisted what it was that Paul had to say in the minds of his hearers. And they caused people to split in two. In two factions and two groups. Verse 3 says, Therefore they spent a long time there, Paul and Barnabas, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it, and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. 
you would have expected from the very first, verse 2, whenever opposition began to increase, that Paul would have been hitting the road, taking it out of town. But that's not what he did. In fact, verse, 13, uh, verse 3, I'm sorry, says that he stayed longer in that city of Iconium, preaching the gospel boldly. Paul was not one we've already learned in the book of Acts, and we'll certainly see it later as we move further. Paul was not a coward. Paul was not one who would quit on anything that God had called him to do. And whenever the heat began to be turned up, and whenever he began to face opposition, and whenever that opposition would turn physical, the last thing Paul would consider doing was throwing up his hands and quitting on what God had called him to. And so he digs in even further. As the heat grew hotter, Paul dug in deeper. And he preaches, verse 3 says, that same message boldly with reliance upon the Lord. He spent a long time there. The time would come when these people would be split into two groups, one for him, the other against him. It tells us that the plans were put in place, verse 5, to have him stoned. And then verse 6 says that when he became aware of it, that he fled to a different region, a region that was on the outskirts, that was off the beaten path, so to speak. He didn't flee out of cowardice. He fled out of wisdom. In fact, the next verse, verse 7, says when he got to where he fled to, he began preaching that same gospel. Do you think Paul knew wherever he went preaching that message, it's going to cost him? Yes, he knew that. His mama didn't raise no dummy. He knew wherever he went, that message was a polarizing message that the people would either be for the message, thus for him, or against the message, and thus against him. Paul knew that everywhere he went, that's what he encountered. He knew, however, in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the, of the, of the cost of being a follower of Christ, he understood and he understood clearly that his voice for the Lord Jesus Christ was far too valuable to be silenced. And so despite the opposition and despite all of the costs that came, he continued to preach, he continued to proclaim Jesus Christ, and he proclaimed him boldly. There were silencers there in their midst. You've already seen them. Verse 2, it, were the Jew, it was the Jews who disbelieved, didn't believe, they didn't accept, they didn't embrace Jesus as Messiah. They rejected the Messiah, thus they rejected the messenger. Listen, there will be times when you talk to someone about Christ, and when I say talking to people about Christ, when I talk about speaking boldly, when I talk about uh, uh, your voice being valuable, I don't mean you jumping up on a stump somewhere and having a 30-minute sermon prepared in the workplace. You know, All right, it's break time, guys. Come on, I'm going to preach. I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. Very few would be willing to do that, would feel comfortable doing that. However, if you, given 30 seconds, you can tell people about Christ that can change forever for them. You know? So that's what I'm talking about, just the day-to-day -day routine of you walking the walk God's given you, opening the doors that he opened, and you making the name of Christ known. That's what I'm talking about. And whenever you choose to speak for the sake of the gospel and you share with another person the, the, the blessing of what God is doing in your life, and when you share how they can have a relationship with Christ, whether that's in 30 seconds or 30 minutes, you're going to face, you're going to see one of two things happen, if not both. You're going to see God open doors of opportunity for you to continue doing that when you're faithful, and you're probably going to see opposition that's going to come. There are silencers that have muffled the voice of believers today in our culture. Believers that have had their lives changed. That eternity has been changed for them. Heaven awaits, not hell. And yet in the midst of all the blessings of God, there are many, many, many believers whose voices are silent today. And I want to give you four reasons. And we'll trace them somewhat through Scripture. 
if you'll allow me to gravitate away from Acts, that I believe will help us to understand that these four silencers are deadly when it comes to sharing the gospel message of Christ. Number one, one thing I believe has silenced the voices of too many believers is comfort and success. Comfort and success. It's almost as though we have a tendency as believers to gravitate, like many things, along the path of least resistance. Like water running downhill, charting its own course through the, through the path of least resistance. Believers have the same tendency. And what often happens is whenever we seek to, to be used by God, we come to a place because of our comfort, because of our success, because of the wealth or the blessings that God has chosen to give us. We come to a place to where if we're not careful, that very blessing that God has given us can serve to silence us in the long run. If you're, if you're willing to look back through the Old Testament, look back to the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets, the book of Amos. If, you're, if you don't have a clue where Amos is, that's okay. <laughs> we don't go to the book of Amos real often. You can dig through there. I'll give you a second to do that if you want to le- use your table of contents. If it's any help, we're going to be on uh, page 1409. If your Bible is the same exact one that I've got, uh, I doubt that's going to be helpful for you. But the book of Amos, if, if you don't find it, I'll read to you what we're going to look at in chapter 6. But Amos was an Old Testament prophet. He was one that prophesied in the 8th century B.C., so the 700s or so. And basically what Amos is doing is he's going to speak for God, and then he's going to write what he spoke for God, which is what we're reading here in the book of Amos. The people of God here in the 8th century B.C. were a place of real prosperity. They had an awful lot that God had given them. They were, they, they were wealthy. They were prosperous. They had experienced success. God had blessed them tremendously. However, they had allowed the blessings of God to ultimately derail them in regards to their true worship of God. And so Amos, because God loved them far too much to let them go astray, would be the prophet that God would use to speak to them. And so listen to what it says. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what he says about not the sin of wealth, because it's not a sin to be wealthy, but look at what, he, what, what Amos uncovers here as the downfall of wealth and comfort when it's not recognized for what it is. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. In other words, those that found their security in a place, not in a person, that being God. He said, Woe to them. He says, Woe to the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Look in verse 4. He says, Those who recline on beds of ivory, And who sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves. Who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. He is describing people who have everything. And not once does he say it was wrong for them to have those things. He has described a life that was just filled to the max. And by the way, we live in the most prosperous, most blessed, most wealthy nation in all the world. And though you may not feel like it, if you pick you up from your place on this island or wherever you live in this city and you put you down in, in, the, in the majority of where this world lives, you would be by far the most wealthy person in their community. And he's not saying it was a sin to have this wealth. Look at the problem, the end of verse 6. He says, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph when it came to the most important aspect of life, that being the spiritual condition of people before God. They had no heart. So verse 7, because it would cost 
far more for them to go their way without God, God would choose to do the one thing that would get them back. Verse 7, therefore they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe not the wealth, but the arrogance of Jacob. And I detest his citadels, in other words, those things in which they place their trust. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that it contains. It's perhaps one of the most effective silencers within the body of Christ today. Comfort. Success. It says to us, why rock the boat? Why mention Jesus? Why bring him into the discussion? Why introduce him into the heart of my life, my relationships? It's comfort in its success that beckons us along the path of least resistance. Why rock the boat? Why make people mad? Why run the risk of ruining a relationship or, or hurting my place and position in the company? Why let them see what Jesus looks like when Jesus does business in the workplace? Why let them see what Jesus looks like when Jesus operates on a personal, uh, personal level in a person's life? Well, let me just kind of keep him pushed down in my life, and I'll just live according to my own terms in public, but I'll live differently in private. And it's our comfort, it's our success that causes us to measure out our faithfulness to God. How much do I have to lose by letting him be first? And when do I have something to gain? And it will silence the Christian perhaps quicker than anything aside from sin itself. God would have harsh words because he knew what it would cost. Listen to this. Not just Israel, but the nations that they were supposed to be reaching. And so he dealt with them. You read through the book of Acts, first century church. Jesus has come. He's been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's ascended up to heaven. small group of believers has now exploded into thousands. It's not just in Jerusalem anymore, but it's reached out to uh, Judea, Samaria. It's now spreading to the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel is exploding. And you look at these early Christians that we read of in the book of Acts 2,000 years ago, and you ask yourself, what word comes to mind to describe those early believers? Let me ask you, is comfort one of them? Absolutely not. They left everything <laughs> to follow Christ. They, they left virtually everything to make the name of Jesus known. Paul, was it comfortable for Paul to hop a ship somewhere and to sail to a land he had never known, to share a message he knew would possibly cost him his life? Let me ask you this question. Would that be comfortable for you? No, it wasn't comfortable for Paul. He wasn't some super saint that lived on a different plateau. No, he was an average person like you and me. And he probably was hurt to the core whenever he was uh, abandoned by his own people, whenever he was rejected for the message he proclaimed. They probably hurt him just as deeply as it would hurt any one of you or me. It wasn't comfortable for him to have to, to, to uh, uh, leave the things that we, he was comfortable with, to embrace a life that he had never known, that he didn't even have to have. He could have had the world at his fingertips as a leader in the Jewish ranks and Jewish circles. And yet Paul left all of that. Why? Because of the transforming work of God in his life and because he knew that his voice, listen to me, was too valuable to be silenced. And he could have had comfort and he could have experienced success and he could have kicked his feet up and he could have said, you know, I'm just going to enjoy this life till I get to heaven. But he didn't do that because he knew there was too much at risk, too much at stake. And so he spoke. And he went into the hotbed of opposition, the synagogue itself, and he spoke. He spoke the name of Jesus. 
And yet today the church has never been more comfortable. And yet at the same time it's never been more silent. What is a silencer in the life of believers today? It's comfort, success. Let me ask you a question. Are you blessed? Are you comfortable? Do you have success? Those things are not sins until they turn your heart away from God, until you begin to rest and coast to enjoy those things and miss the most important thing, and that's leading people through the message of the gospel in your life to know the God who has made you who you are. There's a second silencer that comes on the heels of comfort and success. The second silencer is apathy. Apathy. Look with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. A book written to the people of God, the people of Israel, as they're preparing to enter into the promised land. Again, it's not a sin to be blessed. It's not a sin to be wealthy. God blessed his people in the Old Testament and he blessed them in the New Testament. In the Old Testament here in Deuteronomy, they're about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is where we're going to be. And as they prepare to go into the promised land, God makes sure that they receive a warning that helps them to, to not be led astray by their success, by their blessing, and by a heart that would grow apathetic. Listen to what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look down in verse 10. God begins to warn them, Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. He says, when you have eaten and are satisfied. In other words, when you get into this promised land, and you've got everything that you need and want. He says, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he's given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which, which I'm commanding you this day. Otherwise... When you have eaten and are satisfied, and when you've built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of slavery, from the land of Egypt, and out of the house of slavery. God understood, and so he warned his people that when they get into the land of plenty, where they have <coughs> success, where they have uh, <coughs> excuse me, provision, and when they have everything that they could have ever desired, God knew that inherent within that blessing would be the temptation and the tendency to forget God for the sake of the comfort. And so he says, when you get into that land, you make certain that you don't forget that it's God who gave this to you. Because if you forget, it's going to cost you, and it's going to cost you greatly. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has said. This is a phenomenal quote I came across uh, a few weeks ago. Listen to what he says. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. King David, the most mighty man in the Israelite empire, in, in the, uh, the, uh, the, the kingdom of God, really, the, the Israelite empire, steps out on his roof. 2 Samuel chapter 11 captures for us those events. King David at this point was at the, really the height, the pinnacle of his leadership of the people of God. Every person in the nation of Israel, if they crossed paths to him, would have given him the utmost of reverence and respect. He was a person that every person in the nation knew. Perhaps every person in that region of the world would have known. It was the good days of Israel. And yet 2 Samuel 11 tells us that King David steps out this one day onto the rooftop of his palace and he gazes over across the way and he sees a woman named Bathsheba on the top of the rooftop of her place and she's bathing. David, because of his prominence and his power, sends men to secure her and to invite her back to his palace, knowing that she's married, probably even knowing her husband more than likely. 
He brings her to himself, ultimately commits adultery. The child is conceived. You know the whole story. I want to ask you a question. When David walked out onto his rooftop that particular day, did he even have in his mind a hatred of God? No, he didn't have a hatred of God. Did he have in his mind that, you know, I'm tired of this whole thing with God. I'm sick of him blessing me, being wanting all this, this uh, right in my life. You know, I'm just going to shake my fist at him. I'm going to do what I want. No, he didn't hate God. David loved God with all of his heart. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Did he hate him? No, he didn't hate him. Not nearly as much as he forgot him for that moment. And as I heard in a message recently, uh, 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 just a few weeks ago, made a tremendous point. And the point was this. Whenever David was in the midst of that whole scenario, inviting Bathsheba to his palace and committing adultery and covering that over for a whole year, it's not that he hated God, it's that he forgot him. Did he remember the Psalms that he had written through that time? Did he remember that he was a person that God had blessed with position and authority and no he didn't remember any of that he forgot it his heart was at a place of apathy not that he hated god just that he didn't care about him. let me tell you i've been in ministry for a while and even beyond that i've been a christian for a while and I know the battles that I have to fight as a believer, and they are just like the ones you have to fight. And there is a strong, strong tendency when we look at these two silencers together, comfort, success, and apathy, that in the midst of our success, the midst of our blessings, in the midst of our comfort, that we grow not just apathetic, but even hard-hearted to those for whom Jesus came to serve, and even died for. What would it take for God to bring you to a point of being willing to sacrifice whatever he asked for someone you've never met if it meant they come to Christ? What would it mean for you if God called you to leave something that was valuable, a job, a position, to embrace an answer to a call that meant people would come to Christ as a result, how much of a struggle would take place? And would that struggle be because it's comfortable? Or would it be because you don't care about those that Jesus has died for? And I'm not trying to be heavy-handed as though I'm on a platform and I've got this thing nailed and you don't. I just know the temptations for us as followers of Christ. And I look across the scope of Christianity in this country, and I'll just be honest, there's no way to whitewash it. Many times, we don't care enough for people that don't know Christ to do what it takes to reach them. And so there's a silencer called comfort and success. There's a silencer called apathy. There's a third one, and that third silencer is compromise. For the sake of time, we won't trace it through the book of Genesis but you're familiar with a man named Abraham in the book of Genesis. Father Abraham had many him. Abraham had a lot. I had a nephew named Lot. Nephew Lot, had, you know, there's no song about him really. But Lot is a key player in the Old Testament in ways that you never expect. You see, Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Lot was a righteous man, the New Testament tells us. The point came for Abraham and Lot to go separate ways. They just had too much stuff, and so they did. Abraham went one way, Lot went the other. You've heard the story. Lot pitched his tents towards Sodom, chapter 13 in Genesis. 
He didn't go in the city of Sodom. He knew it was a bad place. God would never have him to, to plant himself there. Yes, reach the people, but not become immersed in the culture. So he pitched his tents near Sodom. Chapter 14, we find after a series of events that, that Lot is now living in the city of Sodom. And by the time we get to chapter 19 in the book of Genesis, we find that Lot is sitting in the gate of the city, which is a, uh, a Hebrew phrase that would pretty much give us a, an indicator that Lot was a ruler in the city of Sodom. So it's not that just he was close to Sodom. He was immersed in the culture. He was a part of the culture, not as a missionary reaching it, but as an insider now who was a part of the world. Well, you remember the story. God begins to bargain with Abraham. He tells Abraham what he's going to do. I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because of its wickedness and, and because of its sin that has come up against me. And Abraham, as was Middle Eastern custom, begins to, he begins to bargain with God to some degree, to barter back and forth. Well, God, if you find 50 people there that are righteous, would you not, for the sake of the 50, spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, for the sake of 50, I will. They begin to bargain. They go all the way down, ultimately to 10. Abraham says, God, if we can just find 10 righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, would you not, for the sake of the 12, by your grace and your mercy, would you not serve or, 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 or save the whole city just for the sake of those 10 righteous? God says, yes, for the sake of 10, I will. Now remember, living in that city is a righteous man named Lot. Lot has a wife, that's two. Lot has two daughters, that's four. Lot has, uh, daughters have two husbands, that's six. Had Lot, this righteous man, chosen to live not a life of compromise, but a life of conviction that was rooted in a close walk with God, more than half of the required quota would have already been met. He would have only needed to reach four more people. And with a life of integrity that's sold out in relationship to God, that's not hard to do over a period of time. And yet Lot, because of the compromise of his life, was not even able to reach his own family. Whenever the fire began to fall, his, and he tells his family, you need to hit the road and hightail it out of here because God is about to judge the city. His sons-in-law, the Bible says it, thought he was joking. He had no voice with his own family, even though he was a righteous man because of the compromise of his life. He missed them. And had he been faithful, Sodom and Gomorrah may still be on the map because that was the deal that God made. Silencer in the life of the believer today is compromise. It's a decision to say, God, I know what you want in this area of my life. Thank you for your input. But I'm going to do this. I don't care that you want me to stay in my marriage, though your word makes it clear, and I have no reason to do differently. I'm just getting out. I don't care that your word says to operate with integrity in the workplace. I want more. And so I'm going to change a few things. I'm going to claim a few things that aren't rightly mine, and I'm going to do this. I don't care that you want me to forgive I know that you want me to forgive, and I've been hurt deeply, but I'm going to do what I want to do because it feels better to me to hold a grudge and anger and hatred towards this person who's wronged me, and so I'm going to do this. It's compromise. Not that we are works in progress and we're laid out on the altar and God is molding and shaping and changing us, but it's a planting of our feet and a tightening of our jaw that says, God, I don't care what you want. I'm not doing it. silences us and our neighbors never hear and our co-workers never hear campuses never hear family never hears we stuff Jesus in the box why because our life is a life of compromise compromise market chills the soul 
And then there's a fourth silencer. Your past. You know, for some today, you love God with all your heart. If he called you to die, you'd do it in an instant. You love him that much. And yet, just as you begin to build speed in your Christian walk, just as you begin to grow and to feel that passion, that excitement begin to build, there is some reminder from the past, maybe a sin or a season in your life when you wandered. And you hear the enemy come up in your ear and he says, you don't have a voice. They know what you've done. It may be your family. It may be a friend. It may be a, it may be a community. And though your heart is right with God and your life is yielded, just as you begin to soar, all you feel is that enemy pulling you back again, stealing your voice because of your past. A few years ago, we took our kids to the, to the circus <laughs> down at the Civic Center. It's expensive. Don't buy the snow cones. They'll break you. I got two on layaway for the next time we go. <laughs> One more payment, they'll be mine. You know, if you go to the circus, what you see is, whether it's a civic center or whether it's somewhere else, you go in and you'll see the animals outside caged, right, getting ready to go in for the show. And if, you're, if you've been to any circuses at all, you've seen the elephants, right, these big, just, what are they, a ton, 2,000 pounds? You know, and they're chained to this little stake. Has it ever occurred to you that that little stake probably should not hold that big, giant elephant? I mean, it's just a little stake sticking up a foot, foot out of the ground, a little rope, just an ordinary rope you got in your garage. And this 2,000-pound elephant is walking circles around the stake. You know, that, the way that started was when that, when that elephant was a baby, they took that stake and they drove it in the ground and they took that rope and they attached it to the elephant. And that elephant, undoubtedly, in the first couple of days would tug at that rope and know it wouldn't go anywhere. He'd tug again. He'd walk circles because he would have to do something and he'd tug again and couldn't go anywhere. And undoubtedly, that, ultimately, that stake resulted in the conviction that I can't go. I'm, I'm not free. I'm captive. And as that elephant would grow in size and as it would grow in mass and though it would become 2,000 pounds in weight, it would be that little tiny stake driven in the ground that would keep it from going anywhere. The same stake, same rope. That elephant was not chained, listen to me, to the stake. It was chained to the memory of the stake. And there are believers today in this church and all over who have a voice for Jesus Christ because he's set you free, he's changed your life, he's put you on a different road, he has forgiven you of all your sin, and yet just as you begin to soar, you hear that voice, you've got a past. And you're silent. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder this morning, for believers all over this building today, if I were to ask you the question, are you willing to use your voice to make the name of Jesus great? Have you understood that your voice for Jesus is far too valuable to be silenced? And if it's been silenced in these recent days or months or even years, would it be because of your own comfort would it be because of some area of compromise in your life? Listen, would it be because you just don't care? 
Or would it be because of something that has already been forgiven is still holding you back? Listen, God wants to use you. And he can do the greatest work of, in history. He can change forever for someone through you. If you're willing to let him use you for who you are. He's not trying to make you into some preacher. He's not trying to make you into someone you've seen on TV that you think, I don't ever want to come across that way. He's not trying to turn you into anyone. He just wants you to be you. But he wants you to be you completely and totally sold out to Christ. With the boldness to just talk about what he's done for you. And what he's willing to do for others. God, we pray this morning, knowing it's not rocket science, knowing what can happen to these islands and this city, if just those in this room today were lit up for you, if we just had the boldness that in the doors that you opened for us, if we were willing to introduce Christ into the conversation, if we were willing to take steps even further when our church offers training to, to know how to comfortably and, and confidently share our faith, if we were willing to take advantage of those opportunities and to just take steps, Lord, towards making your name great through the words we speak, Lord, what could happen? And yet we're silent. We're silent as a lifestyle, sometimes because of one of these four reasons on the, on the board. And so I pray today, Lord, if we could identify what keeps us quiet, Lord, that we'd be willing to, to do work in that area, knowing there's too much at stake. The cost is too great for people not to hear of you. Lord, for those this morning that are here that have never come to Christ, there may be, and I'm sure there are some, that have never experienced the joy of having their sin forgiven in your sight. Lord, they're trying all kinds of things to be right with you, but they've never accepted Jesus, inviting him in to take over their life to forgive them. That's the only thing that will work. Yielding life through repentance and faith to the person of Jesus. I pray today right where they sit that they'd make that decision for themselves. Lord, bless the decisions that we must make. And may we leave this place committed, yielded, knowing that we walk in a walk that enjoys you and that makes a difference for you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.